be seated. And thank you, thank you for praying that blessing over our kids in Tanzania. Northridge Cactus Chapel, all of you online, thank you for this blessing that we're able to give to them. Uh, and thank you for your support of the Tanzania Project. As many of you know, because we say it often, uh, we are in it for the long haul. The elders made a decision a couple years ago that our work in Tanzania is for the long haul. We've dug wells, we've planted gardens, we built phenomenal schools, and we're committed to helping these two villages uh, for as long as God calls us to, and, and it's for a long time, because the fruit has been so incredible. So if you haven't sponsored a kid yet, uh, there, obviously we're letting you know today that there is a need, and feel free to, to do that as God leads. But for all of you, thank you for your sponsorship and for your prayers. Well, we're continuing on uh, in, in a new series today that I'm calling a red letter series because we're turning to John chapter 19 and we're gonna be taking a look at the red letters in the chapter, which are Jesus's words. So we're gonna hone in on four words over the next few weeks that Jesus uses in this chapter that give us the amazing themes as we head into this Passion Week uh, with Jesus. So why don't you bow with me and let's pray and then we're gonna dive right in. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the work you're doing around the world. God, most of us know that you're building your kingdom, not just in and around our lives, but as Jesus promised, to the very ends of the earth. And Lord, you have led our church 15 years ago to become uh, intimately and profoundly involved in these two villages in Africa and Tanzania. And Lord, we thank you for the kids that we've been able to pour into and their families. And we pray, God, that that would continue uh, to bear fruit as we love on them in the name of Jesus. And so, Lord, call each one, each one of us, as you will, to what our role should be in that. As we turn to your word now, Father, we pray that you'd give us wisdom and insight into the very words of Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, our Messiah. And we pray, God, that you would speak to us through him and his words to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, and we all say together, amen. So I have said it before, and I'll say it again. I'll keep saying this till I die. The Bible is anything but a boring book, amen? It's anything but a boring book. I mean, some people might not like what it says. I get that, but that's different from saying that it's boring. You see, from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is filled with action, adventure, drama, saga, romance, from life to death, everything in between, that's the Bible. And the chapter that we're gonna be looking at over the next few weeks here at our church, John chapter 19, is no different, no exception at all. This chapter you're gonna see is filled with action, heartbreaking drama, heroes and villains, and even some rugged truth that we need for our lives today. It's anything but boring and then so much more. So let's get our bearings straight as we start out today and enter into this chapter and let's review what's happening up to this point in the Gospel of John. As some of us know, as this chapter begins, Jesus is now arrested. After three years of public ministry where he engaged in profound teaching, healings and miracles and a clear claim to be the long-awaited Messiah, God come in the flesh to save his people, the Jewish leaders have had enough. And they've collaborated with the Roman government to have Jesus arrested and put on trial. 
And in the first seven verses of John chapter 19, Jesus is beaten and mocked by the Roman authorities. And Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea at that time, is reluctant to take this any further because he doesn't find any Roman law of which to put Jesus on trial for. But the Jewish leaders at that time were kind of wily, and so they pointed out to Pilate that Jesus had claimed to be the king of the Jews, which he did claim to be, and they said he's claiming a kingdom, a rivalry to Caesar the king, and that has to count for something. And Pilate buys it. Even though Jesus is not claiming to be a rival to Caesar for the king of Rome, uh, they nonetheless start to put him on trial for somebody who says that he is a king other than Caesar. Jesus' claim was to be the very son of God, the Messiah, uh, the king of the Jewish people, and again, of the entire kingdom of God to reign over God's people. That was the claim, and they're manipulating that claim in order now to get Jesus out of the way. That's the action leading into this chapter. And in verses 8 through 9, everything begins to heat up when it shares us Pilate's response to Jesus' claim to be the Son of God. Look at what it says. It says, therefore, when Pilate heard this statement that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Now, this is a very interesting scene here, folks. Uh, one commentator, Bible expert, points out that Pilate was a superstitious man. He wasn't very religious. He wasn't a church-going person, but he was the kind of guy that was sort of maybe what we call a, an atheist in a foxhole. So when things started to, to get rough, he started to think, well, 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 maybe there is a God. Maybe there is more to this spiritual realm. And so when Jesus claims to be the son of God, he's afraid. He's superstitious. And he asks the $10 question, he says, where are you from? And he doesn't mean Nazareth or Jerusalem or anything like that. He means, are you from heaven or from earth? That was, that's what he's after here. And yet Jesus doesn't answer him at all. And the reason Jesus remains silent is because he already answered this question back in chapter 18. In chapter 18, he told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this realm. In other words, it's not earthly. And yes, I am the king of the Jews. So in Jesus' mind, I've already given you the answer. Let's move on. And it's here that the first of the red letters appear in John 19. This is the first time Jesus will speak in this chapter. Let's read what he says and does. It says, so Pilate said to him, you don't speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Now, this is actually not all that complicated of a scene. You notice that three times, twice said by Pilate, once said by Jesus, they each use a word here that dials us into the core of this dialogue. It's the word authority. Again, repeated three times here. It's the Greek word exousia, and it literally means authority, power, or control. 
And it's a word, this is important for you to know, that is used all the time in the New Testament, just like the word is used all the time today. In fact, in my study this week, I found out that this word authority appears over a hundred times in the New Testament, and that's a lot because the New Testament isn't that long uh, in, in, in its duration. And it's a word that was common in the Greek culture back then. And it's a word that was used to describe power over people. That's authority back then and even today. It's when you and I use our internal or external power to control others around us. And the Greeks used this word for society as a whole with governmental leaders. They used it within the family structure. They used it in the work structure. They even used it in the religious structure to talk about the authority of the gods. And the New Testament would use this word, as I said, a lot as well. And the New Testament would use it in very similar contexts. Jesus was said to be one who had the authority behind his teaching that was unlike any of the other religious leaders at that time. And the New Testament would talk about authority within the church and authority within the family and authority within society and authority within the spiritual realm. It's authority that Jesus and Pilate are talking about here, power over people. It's a way to have order and control in the world around you. And capitalizing on this theme, John in his narration here and Jesus in his words here go on to share with you and I three things that help us make sense of authority. And here's why this should be important to you. Even though I might not know you personally, I can promise you that the second I mentioned that the context here was all about authority, all of you had one of three different reactions. Those of you who are control freaks said, I love it. Let's talk about authority. Because you love authority. You love to have it and you love to exercise it. But then there was a second group of you who basically said, I hate authority. I hate authority at all levels. It's never gone well for me. And you don't like a discussion on authority, but then there's the rest of us who are probably somewhere in the middle. We have a love-hate relationship with authority because as we'll see, we've been, we've been blessed by it, but we've also been hurt by it. And so that puts us all, if you will, in the same camp to be interested in what Jesus might have to say about authority that might help us make sense of it. So hang on to your seat because here's the first thing that, this, that John in his narration and Jesus in his words make clear and that is that we all experience authority in our lives. In other words, for those of you who think you can escape it and try to avoid it, you can't. The Bible is going to affirm here and in other places that all of us in this world are going to experience authority in our lives on a regular basis. It's universal to the human condition. And as we'll see, we experience authority over us in multiple settings, as well as we get have authority over things and people in our lives as well. So first, look at how Pilate affirms this as John tells the story. Look at verse 10 again. It says, so Pilate said to him, Jesus, you do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? So Pilate's basically saying to Jesus, don't you know who I am? 
I'm somebody that has authority. I'm both under authority from Caesar and I have authority over you and the culture around you. And it's interesting, Jesus will not go on to argue with him about this. Jesus will actually affirm, you'll see what this means in a minute, that Pilate indeed does have authority. Why? Because Jesus knows, and Pilate is affirming here, that all of us have authority in our lives, either authority over us or authority under us. No one can escape the experience. You know, one of the things that I, I did this week that has uh, been actually a fun thing for me, it's why my kids call me a dork, is that I spent uh, time this week looking up every occurrence of the word authority in the New Testament. It's the Greek word exousia, it appears over a hundred times, and I looked at all a hundred occurrences of authority in the New Testament, and I asked God to, to help me understand what the Bible is telling us about authority. And one of the things that hit me was very, very fascinating for you and me today. And that is, as I looked at all the occurrences of authority, I realized how much authority is around you and I on a daily basis. So let me show you what I mean. I'm going to draw a picture of you, and I'm a terrible artist, so we'll use a stick figure here. I want you to pretend that this is you, and because you're in church today, we're going to put a big smiley face on you, all right? So there you are in your life right now. Now, here is what I discovered tracing the occurrences of this word exousia throughout the New Testament this week, and that is that over you right now, God says there are multiple kinds of authority that you cannot escape. So for instance, you are under the authority of society in your life right now. Romans 13 verse one. Using this word, exousia, it says that we are to submit, we are in submission to all government authorities around us. Whether good ones or bad ones, you'll see why that's important in a minute, and that all of us fall under that. And then as I track this word through the New Testament, it affirms that we have authorities at work. Uh, Paul the Apostle says in Acts 26 verse 12 that in his work as a Pharisee, he was a full-time Pharisee, he had the authority of the chief priests over him. And there's other examples of this where, where the Bible affirms that there is an authority that you and I have on our jobs. Obviously, many of you know the third thing is that this word is used in light of family. In Ephesians 6, verse 1, it talks about the authority that parents have over their children. And even though it doesn't seem like it anymore for some of you, that's still true. That, that there is a, an authority implicit in the family structure in which we have authority of your child, of parents over us. And then I love this one. There's an authority structure within the church. Hebrews 13, verse 17 has become my new favorite verse. It says that you have leaders in the church and you shouldn't make their job hard. Don't you like that verse? I kind of parked in front of that one this week and I'm gonna send it to some of you who have not been doing that very well lately. No, I'm teasing. But, but there's an authority structure within the church. I'll talk about that more in a minute, how that's been a blessing and a bane to me. And then there's a spiritual realm of authority. I thought this was really fascinating. Uh, Paul the Apostle in Acts 26 verse 18 is talking about his spiritual journey. And he says that before I came to know Jesus, I was under the domain or authority, exousia, of darkness, of Satan. 
So everybody that doesn't know Jesus is actually under authority. It's just not a very fun authority. But then he said, when I came to know Jesus, I'm now under the domain or authority of Jesus. So there's a spiritual authority going on everywhere. And then I found this fascinating. With this, we'll move on. The Bible even affirms the authority of nature. In Revelation chapter 9, it talks about how someday there's going to be another locust infestation as the end times comes. And during that locust infestation, there's going to be a dominion of nature over humankind that even exists now. And so please simply see this, that the Bible, as I trace this word, affirms the fact that you and I have authority over us in this world. Some of you hate it and don't like it. I get it. We'll talk about that in a minute. But you can't escape it. All of us, from society to work to family to church to spiritual life to nature, experience authority in our lives. But here's also the flip side. As I trace this word even more, and I'm not going to give you all the scriptures for this because it would take too long, but the Bible then affirms that we have authority over things in our lives. We have authority, as you can imagine, some of us in society. The Bible affirms that. We have authority in work. We have authority in our families. We have authority in the spiritual realm. In fact, I loved this one. In Matthew 28, uh, we're going to see this verse in a minute here. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, so you Christians go into all the world. Because you have an authority within the spiritual realm that is at your disposal. That should encourage you. And then I found that this word is even used to talk about authority over things. Remember that famous story with Ananias and Sapphira when they sold that piece of land and got some money and then lied to the apostles about that money that they didn't give to the church? It didn't bode well for them. You can read the ending in Acts chapter 5. But it uses this word authority that says that when the apostles confronted them and it said, you had authority over your money and you didn't use it wisely. So add it all up. I simply need you to see this, that Pilate was correct. He had authority in our lives, like we all do. And the Bible affirms this in spades. We all experience this over us, under us, around us, with God, with all people in our lives, and sometimes even nature and things. And when you and I understand this, and I think we do, here is something else we tend to know. Now tell me if this isn't true. And that is that sometimes authority is experienced as positive and life-giving. Even for some of you who are really rebellious, just admit it, sometimes authority is experienced as positive and life-giving. And sometimes it's experienced as negative and life-depleting. So we all experience it. You can't get away from it. It's sewn into the fabric of how God has made this world. But a fallen world, abuses it. And so when you get right down to it, authority in the Bible is described as a double-edged sword. In one sense, it's used to provide a covering and a protection and a provision for us in this world. But then the sword flips and it's used to hurt and abuse us because fallen people make a mess of it. And before we move on, all I know is that as a very young man, I realized this one was going to be the journey for the rest of my life. As many of you know, I served as an associate pastor for nine years in Detroit before I decided to go into senior leadership in the church. I needed to 
because as a young man, I was filled with a lot of insecurity and anger and, and, and fear, and I needed to spend time under the authority of another pastor and of elders in order to find my true calling as a pastor. And it was a wonderful experience in Detroit. My senior pastor, I've mentioned to you before, is named Kevin. And though he wasn't perfect, he provided that wonderful authority that I needed in my life to, to be mentored and, and to get my head straight and my soul straight. And Kevin, again, wasn't perfect, but time and time again, he would mentor me and guide me and, and even at times speak very difficult truth to me, but he guided me as an authority figure for nine years. As well at that time, we also had other people in the church that would use their authority, and it wasn't such a savory, wonderful experience. We had elders in the church back then like we do here today, and they were wonderful, godly men, but they weren't perfect either. And I'll never forget one particular night when I was a young man, we were having an elder meeting, and, and I found the, the, the raw end of authority and how it could be so hurtful. Uh, we had been doing a pastoral search for a youth pastor at that time, and Kevin, who was teaching me how to be a pastor, had put me in charge of this search. And this was back before the days of, of a lot of email and cell phones and stuff like that. So, you know, it was a huge deal of having to put ads in, in, in paper magazines and seminaries. And we searched the whole nation and we found our next youth pastor and we brought him in. And I did all the interviewing and prep work and all of that. And we were going to present him to the elder board. And Kevin, as he always did, said, I want you in the meeting there because, you know, you always sit in the elder meetings. You need to learn how this stuff works. And so I was very excited about this. And we were walking into the elder meeting that night and I got stopped at the door by the chairman of the elder board. Now, you guys are gonna see where this is going right now because this guy was a colonel in the army. And one thing I've learned about people in the army or the armed forces, and this is, I think it's just me, they tend to be rather black and white. Have you ever noticed that? And authority is a big deal for them. And in this guy's mind, having the associate pastor in that meeting that wasn't an elder, he didn't want it. And so he stopped me at the door and he said, hey, thanks for all your work on this. We can handle it from here. And I looked at him and I said, well, I, I appreciate that. But I said, Kevin wants me in this meeting and I've done all the groundwork for this. And, and so I think I need to be in this meeting and would you let me in? And he looked at me and he said, no. And I started to look beyond him, which was my mistake. I started to look beyond him to try to find Kevin. And he said, what are you doing? Don't look for Kevin. He can't help you here. I'm the chairman of the board, go home. And he shut the door in my face. Now, I gotta tell you, um, back then, and I'm better now, my wife is here today, she can tell you this. Back then, I only experienced two emotions in my life, good and bad. Men, can you relate? And at that moment, I would have described my emotions as bad. I was angry, I was frustrated, I, I felt a lot of shame, I felt like I was three years old, and I went home that night. Boy, was I in a bad place. More on that in a minute. My guess is many of you could tell a similar story where maybe you've had authority that provided a wonderful covering like my friend Kevin, and then at the same time, maybe in the same organization, you experience authority that doesn't seem as friendly. And maybe your story is a lot even worse because sometimes this can get really ugly. We all experience authority in our lives, sometimes in life-enhancing ways and other times not, but Jesus makes it clear we're all gonna experience it. And so the question becomes, what do we do with this? Especially when our experience with authority doesn't go our way, like it's not with Jesus here, what then? 
Well, this is the second thing that we learn from the red letters here in John 19. And this is good. You're going to like this. And that is that Jesus is going to tell us that God is sovereign over any and all authority. And I could almost add, and this matters. God is sovereign over any and all authority. So check this out. After Pilate declares his authority to Jesus, look with me at how Jesus responds in verse 11. This is very fascinating. It says, Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me, Pilate, unless it had been given to you from above. Now again, this is a very interesting way Jesus responds. I mean, Pilate is pulling a power play with Jesus here, asserting his authority as most societal leaders do. And Jesus responds by essentially telling him that his authority, now don't miss this, is a derived authority. It's a permitted authority, if you will, and not from anything like the Roman government or anything silly like that, but he's saying it's permitted from above. That's his exact word, above. And I find that kind of funny because, you know, Pilate earlier was looking for an answer uh, from, you know, where are you from? I think now he's got it, don't you think? I think now Jesus is saying, I'm going to tell you where I'm from. It ain't here. It's from above. And guess what? There'd be no authority you could have that didn't come from that place. And let's be really clear, gang, on what Jesus is affirming here because it's richer than you think. He is not just affirming that God is the ultimate authority, kind of like a CEO of a company. No, he's affirming that as the ultimate authority, he is in control of everything that happens. So he's not just the top dog, he's in control of all the dogs. You see, a CEO of a company might have the ultimate authority, but let's face it, most CEOs don't know everything happening within their companies, especially if it's a big company. God has a huge company. It's called the universe. And what Jesus is saying here is that he knows everything that is happening and even these authority structures are within his control and his purview. Essentially, Jesus is saying to Pilate, God is in control of your authority, dude. He is in control of my destiny and he has only granted you authority as part of his ultimate plan and purposes. And so the broader principle that you and I need to derive from this and not miss is that when it comes to any and all authority, even all the human-based authority going on around us, God gives it and God takes it away. God will ramp it up when he wants to and he'll throttle it down when he wants to. It all happens within his authority. That's what Jesus is affirming here. And what you need to know is the Bible talks about this all over the place. When Paul the Apostle is using a a wonderful word picture of God being the potter and us being the clay, look at what he says in Romans 9.21. He says, does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? In other words, God's the one molding this whole thing. And so you might not like how your life is turning out, but trust him and and submit to him and his authority because he's got this. And then even in more theological language, Colossians 1.16, in talking about Jesus, says, for by him, Jesus, all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or 
authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. So it's here on earth, all authorities, it's for his purposes. And then I told you we'd look at this verse earlier, Matthew 28, 18, and Jesus came up and spoke to them, meaning the disciples saying, all authority. I looked up that word all in the original Greek this week, and you know what it means? Say it with me. All, all authority on, all authority on has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And so he's got this. And the very practical point you and I need to understand is that this should give us great comfort, especially when we're on the raw end of authority. For those of you who are rebellious or maybe like me back 30 years ago, they're just receiving a bad end of authority, at least in our minds. The fact that God's got this and is up to something should be great comfort to us. In fact, it's the main thing that Jesus held on to when he was experiencing this with Pilate. I didn't finish the story earlier, but I'll finish it right now. I, I, I was th think it would be mild to say I was angry that night. I, I was so angry, and I don't do this anymore, at least I hope I don't, but I was so angry back then that I, next morning I called up Kevin and I met with him and I just railed on him about what his elder chair did and, and I just said, I think it's time for me to go to another church. I'm just not putting up with this stuff. And Kevin was really good at handling me when I got like that, because it happened about weekly, and, uh, and, and when I got like that, <laughs> And I didn't know it then, but he had a little bit of a psychological trick and he knew how to handle me. And now I use it all the time in my life. And that's that he never told me what to do. He knew that if he came back at me with equal strength, it would just make me even more angry. And so he'd get really soft at that time. And he said, well, if you wanna quit, I'm not gonna stop you. I'm gonna be really sad, but it's your choice. And he'd always put it in spiritual language, which made me feel guilty. He said, if God is calling you to leave this place, then, you know, we will have to accept that. But then he said, but, but, but I want you to do two things before you would make a decision like that. First, I want you to get with this elder chair, and I want you to tell him how you feel. I want you to tell him how it made you feel. I said, that won't be a problem. So he said, you know, I, I want you to get with him. And, and then, no matter how that goes, I want you to get with God, and I want you to tell him that, that you're going to leave the church, and just make sure this is his will for you. Can you do those two things? I can argue with that. I mean, I'm a pastor. Of course, I got to do those two things. So I got with the elder chair and, and I just let him have it. I, I said, you have no idea how that made me feel and you had no right. I'm in all those meetings. I'm the one that did all the legwork for this and, and I should have been in that meeting and someday I'm going to be an elder and I sit in these meetings anyway and Kevin wanted me in there. That's why I was looking for him and all you did was slam the door on me. Da, 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 da. And, and I wish I could say that, that he repented in sackcloth and ashes, but he didn't. Remember, he was a colonel in the army. I don't think they ever apologized for anything. And he looked at me and he said, I was right. You shouldn't have been in that meeting. This was the elders. We had business to do in which only elders were doing it. You're not one. And I know you sit in on the meetings a lot, but in this one you weren't. And it's my call, not Kevin's. And so if you're looking for an apology, you're not going to get one. But then he got soft. I think it was only because he was married. And, and he said to me at that moment, <laughs> he said, but I, I do know that the way I said it was abrupt. And, and though I was blindsided, I should have been more soft and I should have not shut the door in your face and I shouldn't have told you to go home. He, he said, I should have handled that better. And for that, I am sorry. And then he said, but I'm not apologizing for you not being in that meeting. 
And I thought, well, okay, I win at maybe 10% in this. I walked away from that, and then I got with God. And I tell you guys to do this all the time. You got to get with God on these things. And, and, and as I got with God, here's what I heard him say. I heard him say, bad news. This will not be the last time you experience that. You need to grow up, kid. Because if you want to stay in church work, if you want to stay working with volunteer elders and volunteer people who are really messed up, and you guys have proven that to me, if you want to, if you want to work with that kind of group, you're going to get hurt a lot. And people are going to exert authority over you that sometimes seems and is very unfair. He said, so if you want to do this, you're going to stay in the ring. And then he said to me, but don't worry, I got this. I know what I'm doing with my church. I know what I'm doing with your life. And though you're not going to win every battle and though it's going to be difficult at times, I got this. I'm sovereign. I'm in control. And you can get out of the ring if you want to but you're gonna miss the journey if you do. I said to my wife the other day, 30 years later, I, I don't know if I've matured or I'm just tired, but whatever it is, it works. Because now, when I experience unfair authority, and I do, I don't always handle it well. You can ask my elders, but I mostly do. Because I realize I'm a man under authority, and I should be. We'll see why that's important in just a second here. And I also realize that even when it doesn't go my way, and this will be relevant to some of you, God's got this. It's at that time where our faith needs to kick in because that's exactly what our Savior did. He didn't fight Pilate. He said, God's got a plan here. And no authority has been given to you, Pilate, except that God has given it. And I'm trusting in him. And that's the ace in the hole for you and me as well. So let's wrap this up because we got one more profound point to look at. As we've seen, we all experience authority. It's a double-edged sword, sometimes to protect and provide, other times it hurts us deeply. But God's on the throne. He's sovereign and in control of all of this. And just like Jesus, we should take great comfort in that. And then, as if all of this were not enough, Jesus goes on to make one more critical observation about authority. And, and I know some of you are tired, but hang in there with me on this one because this is so important. And he's going to switch gears dramatically here. He's going to turn the table on us when he says this or connotes this to us. And that is that he lets us know that God is watching. God is watching. So look with me one last time at these red letter words of Jesus and you'll see what we mean by God is watching. Look at how Jesus wraps up this scene here with Pilate. He says, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. We've seen that. And then he says, for this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Let me repeat that. He who has delivered me to you, Pilate, has the greater sin. Now, two minutes, let's make sense of these words. Sadly speaking, these words have been used by some over the last 2,000 years to promote anti-Semitism. It's for another teaching, but these words have been used by some to say, see, see, it's the Jews who put Jesus on the cross. It's the Jews who delivered uh, Jesus to Pilate, and he was just sort of a pawn in this. It was the Jews who were really at fault. 
And yet what's interesting is that when you drill down on this passage, I think there's at least a much broader principle at work here. First notice that it doesn't say the Jews delivered Jesus over to Pilate. It says that he delivered Jesus over to Pilate. Who's the he? Caiaphas, the high priest. So it was one man that Jesus is indicting here, Caiaphas, he's the one who delivered Jesus over. I think that's rather important. But then secondly, notice, and this is equally as important, that all Jesus is saying here is that Caiaphas has the greater sin, which makes sense. In other words, Pilate doesn't know what to do. He's afraid, he's superstitious. He has a lot of authority, but he's kind of looking to Caiaphas to sort of tell him what to do here. And so Pilate has some culpability here to be sure, but Caiaphas is the one driving this. But I like how one commentator says it. This was really good. He said, greater sin also assumes lesser sin, amen? Greater sin assumes lesser sin. So he's not saying that Pilate has no culpability. He's simply pointing out here that God is watching all of this and that Caiaphas has a greater responsibility here than Pilate, but both of them have sinned. Both of them have handled their authority in ungodly ways, in ways that are gonna put Jesus on the cross. But go back to point two, God's sovereign and in control of all this. He has a plan. But the point is, God is watching. That's the broader principle. And I guess I would remind you by application to me and you that God watches all of his people, Caiaphas, Pilate, you and me, and he watches how we live our lives and how we use or abuse the authority we have. And it is true that some of us are held to a higher standard than others, but it doesn't mean that God's not watching all of us. As I'm teaching you right now, James chapter three says that I'm gonna be held a stricter judgment for my teaching because I dare to get up on this stage and talk to all of you about what the Bible says. In other words, to him who's given much, much will be expected. And so there's some of you who've been given a tremendous amount of authority in your lives, whether again, it be work, family, society, the church, and what you need to know, and I'm not trying to scare you, is that God is watching. He's watching how you use that and whether you use it for his purposes or for your own purposes, whether you use it to provide protection and provision, a covering to those around you, or whether you're using it to hurt and abuse those around you. I think that's the point that Jesus is making here. And the reason that the stakes are so high right now, and all of you know this, is that as our culture around us, as our world struggles so desperately with increasing secularism, with increasing decadence, with more and more people just not interested in church, here's what you might not realize. They're still looking at you and me very closely. And they're watching us like hawks. And I know this because I stay attuned to these things. And they're looking at you and me and they're looking at whether or not we're big old hypocrites or whether we're truly walking the walk as we talk the talk. This will be an interesting factoid for some of you. I spend a lot of my time, because this is my industry, uh, tracking uh, churches and church leaders that either do really well or, as we've seen more and more, struggle greatly with sin and disqualify themselves. What you might not know is that in my research, out of, out of all the different church leaders and parachurch leaders that have fallen, say, in the last three or four years, 
I would estimate that about 50% of them, this will be interesting, 50% of them were exposed by secular media. They were exposed by the Chicago Tribune. They were exposed by a paper in Seattle. They were exposed, one of them recently, was exposed by a secular atheist who's a journalist that just doesn't like churches and he's looking for things to bring pastors down. And I wish I could say that the things they exposed were not true. <laughs> problem is they were. And so it's just egg on our face. It's a terrible witness for Christianity. But again, it's another reason for us to affirm God's watching this stuff, and so was the world. And at least for me, that's a wonderful accountability for my life. I don't have time to tell you stories, and they wouldn't be appropriate anyways, but there have been plenty of times in the last 30 years where though I'm sure I've not done it perfectly, I'm glad people are watching how I use my authority, and I'm glad that God is watching. Because if it wasn't for that accountability, my wife would probably tell you, I'm just a wreck waiting to happen. But because I know that God is watching, because I know that you're watching and others are watching, I mind my P's and Q's. And I do my best to have godly authority in my life as best I can under the power of the Spirit. How about you? Some of you have authority right now in your work, in your family, in society, even in your church. And we have an opportunity to shine here if you will but realize that God is watching. So to wrap up, let me just ask you one thing. It's a rhetorical question. Who would have thought you'd get so much out of one word in the Bible? Authority. Jesus knew we would. He knew that we would realize that authority is something that all of us will experience, the good, even the bad. And he knew that we would somehow understand that God is sovereign. He's in control of all of this. And he also knew that we would realize that he's watching, God is watching, how we use the authority he's been given us and to use it wisely and submit it under his authority. We can do this and we can shine like those who know Jesus. Why don't you bow with me and let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful teaching of Jesus here as we spend some time parking in front of the red letters of John 19. And God, I pray that as we each give cogent thought to our lives today, and Lord, how we are using or even abusing the authority that we've been given, that God, this would be a time of either great affirmation or Lord needed even great repentance, that we might not be afraid to turn and admit our mistakes and start to get on the road to recovery and how we honor you with the lives we've been given. God, I pray for those of us here today that might be under the raw end of authority right now. I, I, I know how that feels and it's really brutal. And I pray, Lord, that you would bring great comfort, solace, and faith, even joy, as they lean on you and your sovereignty in their time of need. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you're chipping away at our character to become the people you want us to be. And I pray this in Jesus' name, and we all say together, amen.